0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma session. Today I'll be talking about perversity.
1: I normally say perversion, but perversion sounds a little bit off-putting, I think. It's not quite what we mean but there's a teaching of the buddha called the vipalasa dhamma vipalasa is
0: kind of a technical perversion we talk about perversion we mean something that is not quite that is not right something that is out of out of out of alignment the vipalasa are fourth ways in which we
1: perceive reality that are out of alignment
0: out of whack with the way things actually are The commentary says. Commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta says that
1: one of the reasons why the Buddha taught the four Satipatthana,
0: why are there four? Why did he make four categories? is because they correspond to the four weepalasa. We have four kinds of perversions of perception. And We the the four satipatthana address these four so the four satipatthana as we know are kaya vedana citta dhamma kaya refers
1: to Remembering the body as the body, remembering that the body, bodily experiences are what they are.
0: Vedana, remembering that Vedana is just Vedana, pain, pleasure, calm. Chita. Kitta means remembering thoughts, mind states, or just what they are, thinking about the past or future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, many thoughts, few thoughts, they're all just thoughts. And dhammas dhammas is
1: a large category that has many things in it
0: the dhammas are realities realities important realities realities taught by the buddha you know the realities of the hindrances Liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. We have the reality of the six senses seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. we have the five aggregates five aggregates which are
1: satipatthana in themselves or a a part of their group in themselves even though the four satipatthana themselves are basically the five aggregates but here it's understanding this dhamma this teaching this reality understanding
0: remembering them just for what they are remembering the 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 separation of the aggregates
1: the four bojangas four bojangas are the factors of awakening and the eight
0: and the four noble truths the eightfold noble path these
1: are dhammas so basically teachings of the buddha but not just teachings they are realities as well we be mindful of kind of a set of teachings that form a path leading to the four the four noble truths starting with the hindrances overcoming them then the aggregates and the senses which is what we practice what we observe when we practice the four satipatthana and then by that developing the bodjangas realizing the truth these are the four satipatthana and it's a whole talk in and of itself but the four vipalasa dhammas are a way of describing what the four satipatthana are addressing and they are subha which is a perversion of
0: perception of beauty seeing what is not beautiful as beautiful number
1: two is the perversion of perception of happiness seeing
0: what is not a source of happiness as a source of happiness the third is
1: nitya vipalasa Perversion of perception that sees what is not permanent as permanent, not stable as stable.
0: And number four, Atavipalasa,
1: the perversion of perception regarding self
0: seeing what is not self as self.
1: Perverse. So not perverse in in the ordinary way people use that word, but perverse in a Buddhist sense, perverse in a sort of a technical sense, in the sense that it's just wrong. Not only is it wrong, but it's important
0: that it's wrong.
1: We can be wrong about many things, But being wrong about these four things is is
0: harmful harmful to us harmful to others
1: it leads us to do and say and think things that are inconsistent we we act and we speak and we think in order to obtain
0: in order to get what we want but what we want ends up not being good for us
1: we want beauty but if we chase after things that are not beautiful we won't we won't be satisfied we want happiness but we chase after things that aren't happiness we want stability we chase after things that are incredibly unstable cling to things that are unstable thinking they're stable and self we identify with things this is me, this is mine, this I am oh and it's not ours it's not us it's not ourself. and so it's out of our control and we suffer and these are the four satipatthana these are the objects
0: of the four satipatthana or they are mainly uh, separated out and covered by one of the four satipatthana So mindfulness of the body addresses Subhavipalasa because it's the body that we see as beautiful. It's the body that we cling to cling to physical form,
1: We cling to our own beauty or ugliness, or we cling to the beauty of others,
0: we cling to the sexual appeal of the body, the attraction of the
1: body, mindfulness of the body dispels this delusion, corrects this perversity because it's not nearly true. It's not anywhere near true.
0: There's nothing beautiful in the body. There are no diamonds. There's no gold. One might go even so far as to say
1: that there's nothing beautiful about diamonds or flowers, but objectively people see those things as beautiful for for good reason they are delicate they are fragrant (laughs) the the body is not
0: fragrant the body is full of urine and pus and blood so there's nothing special about
1: the body ultimately the, the goal is not to be repulsed but what's useful about the body is that it is so glaringly unattractive that our attraction to it is is fairly quickly dispelled through the practice of mind effectively is dispelled and yet we are so attracted to it that it's a very
0: foundation aspect of our of our clinging. We cling so strongly to the body
1: and so erroneously. It makes a very good object for observation. Even just watching the foot move, watching the stomach move, because it puts you in touch with the body so closely present, it allows you to see the fact that the body is not beautiful.
0: Ultimately, the point is nothing is beautiful or ugly. But that We have such strong perceptions in this
1: regard. I mean there's no reason to see anything as beautiful or ugly. The most beautiful things are are beauty beautiful states of mind, beautiful qualities of mind. Those are things that are truly beautiful, but there's nothing physical that really is beautiful or ugly, that's all just perception, right? But nothing drives that point home better. And looking at the body because of how glaring it is and how strong our attachment is, how strong our perversity is, we get it so wrong. Dogs find dogs attractive, humans don't find dogs sexually attractive. Cows find cows attractive, dung beetles find dung beetles attractive. There's nothing objective about it. and you focus on the body. The discrepancy between reality
0: and and perception becomes glaring vedana, vedana number two vedana addresses the perversity of Happiness. This is a challenging one, a little more so than the first one. It's hard to see that Vedana isn't pleasure, or isn't happiness, that pleasure isn't happiness. It's hard to
1: uh, to appreciate and to understand intellectually. It's not so hard to experience. Often meditators are left unsatisfied and discouraged because of how unsatisfying Way nine ends up being. Sometimes they feel pleasure. Sometimes they feel pain. Sometimes they feel calm.
0: But when focusing on these things objectively, they start to see clearly a pattern.
1: The pattern is that there really is no pattern, that it's chaotic, unpredictable, unreliable, disruptive, and that any kind of attachment to pleasure or calm is effectively a, a recipe for suffering it's a uh, it's
0: a cause for stress and suffering because of the uncertainty and the the uh, impermanent
1: and because of the pointlessness of it a person who experiences pleasure doesn't become happier as a result They like that they're experiencing pleasure, but they don't become a happier person. This is what's hard to see, hard to understand, not so hard to experience. People who are addicted to pleasure aren't happier than those who are not. They're in fact quite the opposite. They're dependent, addicted, quick to anger, quick to become bored and dissatisfied happy and carefree when they get what they want but miserable when they don't get what they want and what they want becomes increasingly hard to obtain is of course we're never satisfied with what we have liking what you have leads to wanting more of it it increases the desire and the attachment to it and because of the increased desire and attachment you need more to be satisfied and so the only answer is either always get more and more of what you want or eventually learn to
0: accept not getting what you want the Buddha said the greatest gain is contentment the best thing
1: you can ever get is contentment a person who clings to pleasure is never going to get that no matter how much you seek out you're never going to get contentment like a drug addict who has to go through withdrawal in order to be free from their addiction. The only way to contentment is to learn to live with
0: and free yourself from your addiction. The third
1: perversity, perversity of permanence is best addressed by observation of the mind because the mind is fleeting, flitting, jumping here and there, arising and ceasing as quick as it arose, switching from one topic to another when, when we haven't practiced Meditation, we think of ourselves as constantly aware and moving from one object to another as an eternal entity. It's why people believe in souls and selves.
0: Because it's so deceptive, so quick.
1: We don't see impermanence because of how quick it is. But when you begin to practice meditation, you start to see the chaos and the uh, impermanence of it. You see that one thought arises and then and, and as soon as it ceases, another thought that is often totally unrelated arises. Our mind can be one thing in one moment and something entirely different as though we had many minds arising which in fact is the case a mind is just a moment when we talk about the mind we're talking about a concept because the reality
0: is just moments so when you watch the mind thinking thinking you
1: start to be observe this reality and you lose this sense of of permanence of stability a huge part of buddhist practice is giving up the need for stability think of it think of that it's such a dependence we have we're so dependent on stability needing a stable life a stable surrounding not being able to cope with change not being able to adapt to change i mean a great part of the suffering from loss is not the loss but the change of course losing something dear to you is, is a great suffering that's a part of buddhist practice but simply the fact that things are different is a huge part of which god would causes us to suffer and if we could and when we can come to see this reality of impermanence straighten out our perception we lose so much of this the sadness the despair the depression the the mourning that comes from loss because we see it just as
0: change which is we're familiar with which we understand as being the nature of reality And the fourth, perversity,
1: perversity of self, perception of self, relates mainly to the idea of control
0: and entity. So when we talk about
1: reality in Buddhism, we make clear that reality doesn't consist of entities, and that entities are part of this view of self. a self, a soul, an ego is just one of many kinds of entities by entity it means like things, people, places, possessions.
0: my body, my car my parent
1: my child my husband my wife my money my life things things don't really exist most especially our own thing this thing we call us this self doesn't exist the self is just a concept That the reality is still just moments of experience that we can never actually come in contact with such a self such a thing is never perceived it's never detected all that can be perceived and detected are moments of experience and and aspects of experience that it turns out what we think of as ourself who is angry and greedy and kind and cruel likes and dislikes and views and opinions and intelligence wisdom all of these qualities turn out to just be made up of moments of experience moments of experiencing the six senses and reacting to them Experiencing the five aggregates that arise at the three sen- the six senses. Experiencing the hindrances. The hindrances are a big part of why we don't see all of these things. But even the hindrances are evidence of non-self and seeing them for what they are. Helps us to see that it's not me getting angry. Absolutely not. Boy, I wish this anger wouldn't come. After you practice, you, you see yourself getting angry and you realize it's not myself getting angry. Though we say it like that. The reality is not that at all. There was no part of me that decided to get angry. There was no me in the first place to get angry. There's where did this anger
0: come from? Why doesn't it go away? Why does it persist?
1: Greed, when we want things, we think it's, I want, I want this, I want that. Uh, Nothing like that at all. Wanting is also unwieldy, unmanageable it's like a fire
0: how do you put out this fire seeing seeing all of this
1: is a very important part of the Buddhist teaching this change in perception where we stop identifying with things and stop conceptualizing things as things allows us to be flexible and independent and and very much in tune with reality. When we live in a world of things, people, places, and so on, we lose sight of the fact that underneath it all, there's this system of experiences going on. And so when someone changes, we're shocked. How could they change? That's not who they are. And if we understand through the practice of mindfulness, what it means for someone to be something you start to see how quite possible it is for someone to change quite drastically and we become more familiar with this and less surprised when things change we're more familiar with the changing nature and the frac- fractional and no, fr- fractured nature reality it's not one big entity but many moments chaotic moments of experience so those are the four vipalasa give some background on why we practice the satipatthana or it's a way of describing and explaining why we practice the four satipatthana it's one way of describing it. it touches on some important topics So it's a useful teaching, a good way of helping provide an introduction or some depth to our understanding of mindfulness practice. Some of the issues that we deal with as Buddhists and some of the issues that we consider to be important, important, important things to focus on, to concern ourselves with. So that's the Dhamma for today. We we'll move on to questions. This is also a question and answer session. So, if you have questions about your practice, you can ask them now. At this point, we're not going to allow anything but questions in the chat, just to keep it focused. The idea is that if you're new here, that if you don't have a question, just close your eyes and you and I can meditate together. We have helpful volunteers here. Chris is asking the questions and behind the scenes we have Jim and Ulu collecting your questions, organizing them and preparing them for Chris. So we don't have to do anything. Let's just sit back and close your eyes and we'll
0: be mindful together. You can listen to me answer. All right, let's begin. I'm
2: worried because my sessions mostly consist of noting hearing because of the constant ringing of my ears. Is it a problem to never return to the breath?
1: So after a while, try and go back to the breath. And then when your mind is pulled out to the noise again, note it again, stay with it for a while but after a while again go back to the the stomach but if you're worried you should also note that and you should also be prepared to note other things that you might be missing don't let the ringing become all consuming if you dislike it or you're worried about it or anything like that just note it as well but no don't stay with it forever try and go back
0: whenever you can to the stomach
3: Recognizing that even one moment spent in meditation is better than none,
2: what would you recommend for an untrained meditator as the shortest formal session, equally divided to walking and sitting?
1: Well, there is no shortest session. I mean, what I recommend to people is to try and work up to 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting, so a start would be 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting. If you can do that twice a day and slowly work up to 30 minutes walking 30 minutes sitting in the morning and then the same in the evening that would be a really strong meditation practice now if you can only do 15 15 if you can only do 10 10 to start that's fine but i recommend people at least to work up to an hour a day of meditation but another thing another part of that is trying to be mindful throughout the day so You can count all the moments during the day when you're able to apply the
0: practice as well.
3: Sometimes when in deep meditation, I can clearly
2: see I am not this body. Is this an illusion created by mind?
1: Well, you don't clearly see. That's just a word you're using, right? you you have a knowledge or an awareness and so at that time you should note knowing knowing or aware aware or if it's a thought if you're thinking about it say thinking thinking that's the only that's the best answer to give because this isn't about moments of clarity like that it's about the practice that leads to them so never get sidetracked by any moments of clarity you might have that's that that, it's that getting sidetracked that's a big pro it is a big problem course there's nothing wrong and there's something good about that experience but again and again we get sidetracked by these good experiences they they become corruptions of insight corruptions are all the good things that happen that we then get sidetracked by it's a very important part of the practice not to get sidetracked the practice isn't about the results it's about the practice
3: In meditation, how can we choose what
2: is most prominent while at the same time not ignoring anything?
1: Well, you can't. You pick which is prominent and you ignore the others. I mean, you don't ignore. What does it mean to ignore? It means you don't note. You note what is most prominent and the rest you don't note. That's what it means. You don't really ignore anything. You you experience things and then they go away. But by ignore, we mean, or you would mean uh,
0: not note them. Then yes, you, you do ignore the rest. What importance do memories have in the meditation
2: practice? I am quite attached to previous times in my life, as well as job performance relating to memory.
1: Well, see, that's not memory. That's your attachment to it, liking, Mostly liking when the memory comes up. But also wanting when you want those memories to come up, and so you give rise to them because of the wanting. So it's not that's not a that's not a sin or something. Like it's not you're not going to hell for that, but it's going to be a distraction and it's going to keep you from progressing. So it's good if you're diligent and, and mindful to become a little more objective.
0: Note when you like it, say liking, liking.
3: Is it okay to consciously note things for a shorter
2: amount of time than what I typically do, maybe even at the risk of not noting them long enough? Should I tweak this until it feels right?
1: Try and note until whatever it is goes away. If after a long time it doesn't go away, you can ignore it, but stay with it for a while.
0: Stay with it for some time. Until the mind has had enough of it.
3: How can I cope with the fear of dying?
1: Well, mindfulness might be determined a way of coping with things. It's probably not the word we would use, but we would say something like, "How would I approach the fear of dying? Face the fear of dying." Because it's not so much about coping with as though that's not a bad word. It's just we might do better by saying face the fear. How would you cope with it, or how would you deal with it? Don't don't just Use a word like cope, use a word like face, because that's the answer. The answer is to face. We're not quite going to cope with it. We're going to face it, become familiar with it. If you want to know the truth, the truth is is through facing, confronting, and learning how to confront things without reaction, because that's the problem when you face things is you react to them.
0: So if you can face things like fear without reacting, that's the goal of the practice.
3: Sometimes I'm so mindful that having a conversation is hard because I'm not thinking what to say. It creates lots of pauses in the conversation. Is this common?
0: It's common that When you converse with people who want to talk a
1: lot, there's a disconnect because they want to talk about things that your mind starts to have little interest in, and they might get upset, and you'll find yourself drifting
0: apart. That's common. What is the process of letting go?
1: process of letting go is the observation of things with a clear mind basically i mean it's quite simple because there is nothing with any intrinsic worth uh, in regards to clinging meaning nothing is worth clinging to there's there's nothing in anything that makes it worth clinging to and so simply seeing things objectively is a sufficient condition for the arising of letting go for the for the state for the event of letting go you don't need anything else but to see things as they are which is why we observe objectively when you observe objectively you'll start gradually to see things more clearly until you see things just as they are and then it's not that it's not actually letting go in fact it's just never clinging in the first place you see because what does it mean to cling it's the arising of desire or attachment to something liking or wanting of something and that just can't arise when you see clearly that's how letting go it's in fact a bit misleading to say letting go because you never let go that doesn't happen You just
0: fail to cling, or fail to cling, I guess, is how you'd put it.
3: How big of a deal is social distancing and reducing the potential spread of the virus as a
2: Buddhist? Is it unnecessary to take it to great lengths relative to what society
1: at large is doing? So here's the thing about the virus, is that people are getting sick and dying from it not not necessarily us but other people and so a big part of buddhism is compassion and kindness another important part of buddhism is is harmony and so these two things i think are how i would describe or or, or teach about the, the state of things with the virus is that one if that's what everyone else is doing you should go along with it because that's harmony and and that's the way society has um, decided to approach it but the other thing is and that's not so important what's more important is the fact that clearly wearing a mask might stop you from getting help from getting the virus but more importantly stops you from spreading the virus getting it and then spreading it to others because this is a thing that is killing people a lot of old people our parents our grandparents and so out of kindness to others I think it's important that we, we, we recognize this I think there's an amount of selfishness involved with people who decide not to wear masks even, even just um, negligent even just not, not thoughtful thoughtfulness is important it's important that we're thoughtful It's a part of Buddhism. And so being thoughtful includes being considerate for others and remembering that by wearing a mask, it's it's not that we're afraid of getting the virus ourselves, because that's, of course, where the problem lies from Buddhist perspective. If you're wearing a mask because you're afraid of getting the virus, you've got a bit of a problem and you should learn to get rid of that fear. But wearing the mask has an important... And doing things like social distancing social distancing because you didn't actually mention the mask but social distancing not not so that we don't get it per se but so that we don't spread it to those people who might get hurt from it because we care about each other and and that's not to say we can't care about ourselves and i think that is also important we we should try our best not to get the virus for our own um spiritual development because if we get the virus it's going to him it's going to hinder our ability to practice it's going to make it harder for us to live our lives and so we acknowledge that that's part of it as well ultimately sickness as a buddhist is is an issue it's something that we don't take lightly we appreciate the severity of it but all that we all that we change is our fear and our Uh, reaction to it so if you're getting angry about having to wear a mask and having a social distance you're not practicing buddhism if you if you think it's it's a bad idea or, or a useless thing to wear the mask then i think you may not be out of line so much with buddhism in terms of your worry about diseases and so on. It might actually be a positive thing that you're not concerned with your well-being, but you've missed a very important point. You've failed to be conscientious and thoughtful and kind in your consideration for others and for the effects. So I was just thinking, you know, if people were mindful and thoughtful and, and considerate, well, not considerate, let's just say thoughtful in remembering to wear a mask and appreciating the, the use of it, wouldn't be hard to control the sickness it's an easy thing to say but obviously it's it's not really possible because of how many people there are in the world but that's really a big part of it you don't just spread the sickness by some fluke we spread it because we're not thoughtful we're not mindful of it we don't we don't think we don't consider that it's a part of our reality it's not really a deep buddhist teaching in that sense. But it's a part of Buddhism, nonetheless, to be considerate and thoughtful and harmonious and caring for each other,
0: not doing things that would harm each other.
3: During my sitting meditation, I start getting worried about my posture
0: not being straight. Should I straighten my back or keep noting the worrying? Not the worrying. Do both, I suppose. You, you can
1: straighten your back, just say straightening, or straight, moving, or even wanting to move and then moving,
0: but also not the worrying. How can
2: I be mindful of my thoughts and emotions? My thoughts come to my mind when I'm distracted,
3: so whenever I want to see them, they just fade away. Well, note the wanting,
1: but what you're seeing is an important part of the practice. As I was saying about impermanence, you're seeing everything fade away, and you're seeing the it's not under your control, the unwieldiness of it all. This this is an important part of the practice that helps you let go. Well, so, what you would do is when you re- recognize that you were distracted. You note after-the-fact distracted or thinking.
0: Sometimes when
2: I meditate, the recollection of the qualities of the Buddha come to mind, and it gives relief from unpleasantness temporarily. Should I say thinking, thinking for these recollections?
1: No, if you're recollecting the buddha you're not practicing mindfulness it's a different or you're not practicing satipatthana practice it's a different practice so as you can see it's it's beneficial and so if you do that for some time just take some time away from it to then do mindfulness practice mindfulness of so the buddha and that sort of thing is like it's like rubbing medicine my teacher would say you know, we have medicine, ointment that you put on the on your sores and so on, and it makes you feel better. But mindfulness is like eating medicine, and you take a pill and it actually cures
3: your illness. How can we help others who struggle with emotions?
1: Well, you can't help them struggle. They have to do the struggling on their own. The best you can do is be a good example for them and leave the door open for them if they're ever interested in learning about what helps you.
0: They can't struggle for other people.
2: In sitting meditation, sometimes it is difficult to note rising and falling of the abdomen. Shall I note touching points in those instances?
1: you just know sitting sitting but try and note whatever makes it difficult as well there's usually something blocking it like some tension or some emotion or some state of mind there's usually something you're not noting just be vigilant about noting things when they arise the
0: rising and falling should come back if you note what is what is uh getting you out of whack How can one mindfully bargain
2: hunt? I used to buy and sell from thrift stores as a source of income and might start again. It seems like it'll be difficult. Is it too entrenched in craving? No, that sounds
1: like a good livelihood. I mean, off the top of my head, I really don't know what it involves, but it is a, a bit concerned with money, but you're helping people get what they need when you buy from the thrift thrift shop and then sell it to someone else, you're selling things that people need, you're providing a service, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, livelihood is a great source for potential uh, craving and desire, right? But it's also possible to do the very same things that would normally cause craving and desire without the craving and desire, simply because it's necessary. You need a means of income and you're not hurting anyone. You find a means of income by which you're not hurting anyone. You're not bothering anyone and you do that. You provide some service and in turn people support you. The best way is when you don't expect anything in return and people support you because they appreciate you. You're seeing that a lot, um, I think, online with these GoFundMe projects and so on, or where, where people have a project and and other people support them. Uh, often based not on what they get get from the person but on how much they appreciate and 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 how much they can right it's not about currency i you you gave this so i pay this much it's this is what it's worth to me and this is what i'm able to pay and this is what i want to give which i think is a really good thing i think it's a good part of the internet now this this sort of uh free stuff getting things for free and i saw a book once many years ago something about free and how we're getting into the culture of free where you you make money by giving things away for free which i think is really good anyway, it's a tangent but it's an interesting idea economy is necessary unless you're you're say a monk who who's given up you know, economy but uh, but even a monk you know gets supported because people support people appreciate And modeling your livelihood around that sort of model is, I think,
0: uh, the best way, if possible. How
3: can one stop masturbating? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it takes mindfulness. I, I think... Of all the things that you should be concerned with, it may not be the most important one, unless, of course, you're going to become celibate, a monastic. But as I said in my pornography and and uh, pornography and uh, masturbation video, I think was what it was called. I mean, it's not something that really does ruin your life. It's it's. I don't think it's breaking the third precept by any means. It's not a terrible thing. It's just, and so, I mean, that's important conversation, important discussion, because it's so taboo. YouTube wouldn't let you post that. It, it hid your, your question, and we had to unhide it, right? Because masturbation, of course, is one of those taboo things, and it it really doesn't help to make these things so taboo. Of course, it doesn't happen to become obsessed with them and, and enamored with them and make them popular things, but to call them wicked and to be guilty, feel guilty about it is we should call it what it is. It's an addiction. And it's a pretty simple and and fairly benign addiction. I mean, not, I'm talking from a societal standpoint. You're not going to go out and become a killer just because you you are you triggering um, physical responses and orgasms in your body. I mean, it's really just a stupid thing. One of my, one meditator once said to me, he was talking about life and how he's getting married and somehow it, conversation got to masturbation and he said i'm not a monkey (laughs) it really stuck with me i'd never heard anyone say that before but the way he saw that it's like being it's like monkey i don't know if monkeys masturbate masturbate, but i suppose they must if if he's talking about it but uh, that's what he equated it with i mean it really is a kind of a silly thing and so mindfulness definitely helps with that i mean it helps you come to terms with it really the only the only answer for this and many things is vigilance and mindfulness if you're mindful you can dry these things up but but again i'll emphasize that it's usually not the most important thing you should be focusing on focus on focus on seeing clearly about things like this and and many other things as well as opposed to being obsessed with stopping it focus on seeing clearly because the first stage of enlightenment doesn't get rid of any of these things It just puts them in the right perspective where you see that they're absolutely not going to satisfy you. Get to the point where you've actually gotten that point across to your mind and and then the rest just falls into place.
2: In walking meditation, sometimes I feel that I say to myself, stepping right, stepping left, without feeling the moment. How
0: shall I handle this problem? Well, practice, really. I mean, you're just seeing how
1: the mind works. You're seeing that the mind doesn't really work, and that the mind is unwieldy, uncontrollable. It's just a part of the practice. Just be patient with it. You can say something. Stop walking and say knowing, knowing, distracted, distracted. When you see that sort of thing, it's a sign that you're starting to get better than that, because you're seeing it before
0: you didn't really see that you did that. I have a Christian background. I went as far as to an enclosed order.
2: Buddhism is very different. May I ask how you have balanced the two?
1: I mean, I don't usually talk about myself, but I was never Christian. I I have a Jewish background that wasn't very strong and much more cultural than anything. My parents did never talk about God or anything like that. But, you know, talking about... There's no balance between the two. I mean, the differences between Christianity and Buddhism are irreconcilable. The, the, The similarities, of course, you can see, but it's all about determining what is what is buddhist about what you've done and what is not buddhist because parts of christianity are buddhist and parts of them are not anything to do with prayer with praising god or relying on god relying on anyone any other external thing to for your salvation jesus or god or anything like that is foreign to buddhism
2: If I am in a situation when someone tries irritating me and I choose to breathe instead of letting my anger out, is this repression?
1: Yes. I mean, repression in Buddhism actually isn't a bad thing. It's just not the best thing. The best thing is to face the anger, see that the anger is there and just watch it come and watch it go objectively. But repression is, there's many ways of repression. In fact, noting is a form of repression in a sense. It's replacing the, your repression is replacing it with something as you're doing, but we replace it with clarity and wisdom, and, and that's the best thing to do. You replace it just with something that doesn't make you th- feel it, then it can lead to delusion because you think you're in control. Mindfulness doesn't do that. Mindfulness is just the objective observation of
0: the thing that you're confronted with. The practice of
2: mindfulness has inclined me towards seclusion from society. Society is distracting and negative. But do we have a path or a role in society, politically or
3: socially, to spread goodness?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't seek out a role in society act- actively, but insofar as you take part in society, and we all do. We all have a role to play in our own society, and you shouldn't shun that or deny it. I think as Buddhists, we do have a uh, have a role to play. I think that you put it quite well. We have a role. We don't have. You might not say a responsibility, but we have a role because. And what it, what that means is, people are going to approach you. You're going to be confronted by situations where you have to take stands, where you have to do things, maybe you have jury duty or even voting. You could I, I think you could argue that voting could be Buddhist, not for monks. I don't think monks should vote, for example, but as a layperson, I think because you're a part of society, you have a duty to to say something. I mean, I wouldn't vote. I, I suppose the problem with voting is mostly it's you're voting for someone who probably isn't a very good person because you're usually the lesser of two evils right politicians are often not very good in that case i think an argument can be made for not voting but if you have a clear choice and you see someone is a good person and you want to vote for that person that voting i think is a wholesome thing you're saying this is what i support and that's a good example because you can make those sorts of decisions in all sorts of ways where you support good things You can support, if there's, suppose there's a garbage pickup day where the community is going to pick up garbage, you you take part in that, because you think, well, that's a good thing. Um, I don't know, picking up garbage actually isn't a big deal in Buddhism, but um, things like that. Let's say there's there's a food bank or a homeless shelter. Absolutely. Buddhists should be all up in that, should be all involved in that. They should be engaged in all sorts of good things of homeless shelters food banks we should be doing all these things this is how we get involved politically i think there's room um, but but much of politically probably is the the least buddhist aspect but um socially you know getting involved with helping in our society and making society a better place I think you just take it as it comes and don't necessarily go looking for it. But when, when the opportunity
0: arises, you you get involved. Bhante, we've
2: crossed the hour, but there are two more questions in the first tier. Do you have the time to answer? Go ahead.
3: How can we use meditation to help make important
0: life decisions? Well, they're not going to make the it's not going
1: to make the decisions for you. That's important to understand. You know, meditation isn't about decisions, it's about clarity of mind. Important life decisions often aren't as important as we think they are. The decision isn't the most important thing. The state of mind is. And a state of mind relates to the moments of experience that we have in our life, and that's what's really going to change our lives. Decisions will change our lives sometimes, but they're, they're far less important than our state of mind
0: as we do the things that we decide to do.
3: How do I stay mindful while I am falling asleep? I've heard of this practice a lot
2: where meditators maintain awareness during sleep and have tried it many times but failed.
0: Any advice?
1: well it takes practice i wouldn't worry too much about that when you're falling when you're you're lying down to go to sleep just try and do rising falling or lying lying the the idea in that case is to forget about wanting to go to sleep and don't don't focus on trying to go to sleep lie down and, and focus on meditation and when you fall asleep you fall asleep right it's a different mindset Rather than having a mindset of, okay, now I'm going to sleep, you think, okay, now I'm going, going to do lying meditation. But you know, you fall asleep, you fall asleep. Don't worry too much about it. All right, Bante,
2: we've reached the end of the tier ones. A good stopping point.
0: Okay,
1: thank you all. Good, good group. Good questions. Sadhu.
0: Wish you all a good day. Sadhu.